I was 15 when I met Teddy Lyons. He was 16. The same age Paul and John were when they met, though truthfully I've always been more of a Dylan fan, having never been confident enough in my looks alone to askew entirely a filthy habit which I've had to ferociously unlearn in middle age, namely bending one's tastes entirely towards whatever one thinks will make them appear smarter, more attractive, etc., etc. It's harmless to a point, of course, healthy even. Where would art museums be? But as the years stack up, so do the layers of phoniness, unless great and deliberate care and effort are taken to keep them trim, each initial instance of insincerity branching out into a dozen devolutions of a hundred permutations interweaving with one another until the matter of what you like and what you don't like, the matter of who you are, is an untraceable briar thicket of other people's other organizations desires dense enough to blot out the sun. Truth be told, I'm not all that sure I like music. The intrinsic appeal it seems to hold for everyone else has always been alien to me, but it's something I've conditioned myself to appreciate, or at least intellectually. That was his real name, by the way. Teddy Lyons. A lot of people have asked me over the years if that is a stage name. It is not. Or if it is, then he registered for Verona High School under a stage name, because it is what was on all of the attendance lists that the teachers read from. He actually did not graduate on his first attempt when he was 18, which is something not many know. In fact, when I first began and recruited him to the group during my junior year, he was only going to school three days a week in order to make up some credits. He still came on the other two days, too, but that was just to sell weed. Once Teddy was in, I mentioned as much in my pitch to Audrey, and that was that. Elena and Jordan were officially added on the following day, even if their joining had been a given since the group's inception. I considered adding their names to the roster from the jump, possibly without even consulting them in the matter, in order to swell the ranks and bolster our optics before I went big game hunting on the recruiting trail but ultimately decided that the pair's presence might color perception of what exactly the group was, socially speaking, and that I wanted to present potential members with more of a blank canvas of a vision, allow myself and the group as a concept to stand on our own. It wasn't so much that Elena and Jordan weren't perfectly well-liked, even by the likes of Teddy and Audrey, but simply that the three of us as a block constituted something of a known quantity, People might jump to conclusions, is all. We met in an abandoned pump house in the woods, just off of the river. It was decided, over my head, that our first project would be the Portland Zoo. I'd come in with big plans for disrupting a local power plant, which hung silently in the air for several moments, a lead weight growing in my stomach as I realized nobody would meet my eyes until Teddy broke the impasse with his zoo idea, which everyone eagerly jumped at, threading the needle so well that I myself was thankful to him for finding such a humane way to end the silence, and didn't even realize what had happened until a few moments later, at which point it was already too late. I tried nudging the power plant back onto the table at several junctions, but even then I instinctually knew not to test my influence against Teddy's. Don't ask questions you don't want answers to, toothpaste back in a tube, so on and so forth.
That was in April, when the buds were on the trees. As soon as school let out, we rented a van with Teddy's dad's credit card and driver's license, which Teddy had swiped from his wallet one night while he was passed out drunk on the couch. We'd spent most of our money on the van and so drove straight through to Portland overnight, sleeping in shifts in the back seat to avoid stopping in a hotel. I'd never been farther west than Des Moines, where the National Spelling Bee Finals were held my freshman year. I came in third place, never made it back. Teddy had a cousin who lived in Portland, and we all were allowed to crash on his floor. We arrived a little after seven in the morning and slept until the late afternoon, and then his brother made us all bacon and pancakes for dinner. He sat up talking with us for several hours after that and went to bed just after ten. We waited a bit to make sure he was asleep and then piled into the van and drove the twenty minutes to the zoo in silence. Flower Moon, said Elena, looking up, which is how our group was named. Children of the Flower Moon. The sky was clear and we hardly needed the headlamps to do our work. I headed for the entrance, which was only held shut by a padlock. I cut the chain and swung open the wrought iron double gate. Audrey and Teddy headed for the far western edge of the zoo with a saw and some bolt cutters. Elena and Jordan stayed near where we'd hopped the fence and got to work on the giraffe enclosure. The plan was for each pair to work their way around the zoo and meet in the middle, doing their best to coax animals in the direction of the exit as they moved, and leaving the big cats bears, and wolves for last, which would hopefully give the prey animals enough of a head start to avoid having the entire operation collapse into a gruesome midnight feeding session. I sat down on the bench near the exit and smoked a cigarette. I was still acquiring the taste at the time and enjoyed the image of myself smoking a cigarette far more than I enjoyed the cigarette itself, but it just felt like the thing to do. I tried to nurse it so that it would still be between my lips whenever I saw Audrey. I wanted to go meet up with her and Teddy, but knew that this would only be setting myself up for pain. If I was around her, I could make her laugh, do something to impress her, and in the few moments we shared alone, it seemed almost possible that she could come around and realize she was actually in love with me if only I could spend enough time in her presence. Her smile, which probably meant nothing to her, just a tossed-off gesture of innocent kindness, held that sort of power. But in the presence of Teddy, the fantasy was simply unsustainable, and so I did the natural thing, like water flowing down the mountain, finding its old familiar ruts, and headed off to join with Elena and Jordan instead. And there was an ibex standing outside the butterfly house, the curvature of his great horns silhouetted against the cloudless sky. We stared at each other for a long moment before he carried on, ambling past me without the slightest sense of urgency, stopping briefly to take a bite of the grass along the path before leaving out the front gate and disappearing into the darkness of the parking lot. When I found Jordan and Elena, they were finishing up with the primate habitats and arguing. Jordan was trying to convince Elena that she should not, could not, take even one gibbon or sloth back home. The animals were still waking up when I arrived on the scene, and the longer we stood there arguing, the more awoke and began arguing amongst themselves. The chimps next door were particularly cacophonous and gave the entire proceedings a frantic urgency that compelled me to move the show along as quickly as I could, even if it meant saying some things to Elena in my role as de facto mediator that I would have to apologize for on the ride home. One by one, the monkeys and apes discovered for themselves that their doors were open and slinked out, 
disappearing almost immediately into the branches of nearby trees, or else scurrying off along the asphalt path into trash cans and behind bathrooms. Our final stop before relinking with Audrey and Teddy was the polar bear enclosure. The primates had scattered by the time we arrived and the entire area was burdened with a deep and resounding silence. The inside of the habitat was awash in shadows and at first appeared to be empty, then a snuffling from a dark corner, something stirring. His white fur, which should have been luminescent beneath the full moon, was something closer to a coffee color, matted and streaked with dirt. For the first time, I registered just how hot it was, even in the dead of night. The temperature had risen above 90 degrees during the day, and the concrete walls were still radiating excess heat long after midnight. We hurried away from the door as the mass of fur staggered to his feet and lumbered toward us. When the beast had covered half the distance, he suddenly rose up onto his hind legs and muttered something guttural, his massive when the beast had covered half the distance, he suddenly rose up onto his hind legs and muttered something guttural, like massive, rusty old gears were turning and grinding once more in his chest. He towered over us, blotting out even the meager starlight. We had to tilt our heads back to look at him up there, even from a distance, and it seemed as though his head might even reach up into the stars. I felt the fear in that moment. The fear of a primitive hunter, so intensely that I might have been clad in heavy furs and toting a spear, with high boots on my feet, worn thin atop mile upon mile of frozen and desolate tundra land in pursuit of my quarry, with nothing to return to save for a fire. No central heat, no walls thick enough to provide any illusion of separateness from the cruelty of nature, just a meek fire against the ceaseless wind, nature's vast and howling onslaught of indifference. He turned his head toward us as he shrugged past, black nose and two black marble eyes assessing us coldly, like you or I might glance at a mouse or a fly. The story made national news. People talked about it all summer, or at least that was how it seemed to us. All told, nearly 50 animals made it off the zoo premises, after three days, police called off the search operation. Many of the animals were caught. Many more were shot and killed. A few managed to escape, mostly birds, and at least one crocodile, which, according to a local retired airplane mechanic and current fisherman, slipped into the Columbia River just after dawn. One of the penguins was unaccounted for until it was determined that it had been eaten by a pack of wolves. The zoo gave him a funeral when the chaos had subsided. Two tigers escaped their enclosure. One was found in the zebra exhibit, lounging easily next to the striped carcass which had been her second dinner, and the other was shot while sedated by a jumpy cop when it stirred in its sleep. A third-grade teacher won $40,000 in a lawsuit against the zoo after a Komodo dragon ate her shih tzu. We woke up and pretended to have been asleep all night while Teddy's brother reheated the leftover pancakes and bacon from the night before, and after breakfast we thanked him and said goodbye and set out for home, but we told him we were going to visit some other friends in California. We took a break after that and didn't see each other again for nearly a month. I think we were all pretty bummed about how many animals had died, and a lot of the reporting didn't even mention that we were activists. 
some outlets called us hooligans or possible pranksters if they speculated on our motivations at all. But none of us were ever caught or even suspected, as far as I know, so when we reconvened at the pump house in the woods in August, everyone was ready to start planning our next move. I didn't waste any time or goodwill with I told you so's and instead moved straight into pitching my power plant idea as the next logical step for our group. It was decided that we would make the attack the night before the first day of school. And if classes were cancelled, all the better. A nice bonus for our efforts. This only gave us a little over a month to plan, so those of us who were over 18, Teddy, myself, and Elena, began making trips to the shooting range a couple of times a week. My father owned an arsenal large enough to supply a small army, and was, it seemed, just happy to have a common interest for us to bond over. It was nearly a hundred degrees out the day we cased the place, the almost deafening chorus of cicadas mingling with the thrum of electricity humming off the interwoven nest of power lines overhead. The whole lush world of washing greens, so dense that the few available shadows verged on blues and purples. The place was unguarded, save for all of the security cameras. Teddy took some of the money he'd made selling weed and bought a pair of night vision goggles at a pawn shop a few days before the attack. He let everyone take turns with them as we hiked the trail that led through the woods to the plant. We climbed the fence at what we determined was a blind spot in the security network, and then Audrey and Jordan took cans of spray paint and went to work disabling every camera they could find. Once it was safe to do so, Elena, Teddy, and I took our positions and loaded our rifles. The first shot came from Teddy. It pierced the cricket and bullfrog silence of the night and drilled straight to my core. My legs wanted to run. It must have been audible for miles. Then Elena began shooting, apparently unperturbed. We hit every transformer we could find and were back on the trail before anyone else arrived at the scene. It was thrilling the way the sparks flew and danced like fireworks in the dark. We laid low for a while after that. The week before Christmas, I texted everyone about reconvening at the pump house in the new year. Audrey texted me back and asked if I could meet her for coffee the following day. Do you ever get the sense that everything so far has gone too smoothly? Like it's all been just a little too easy? She cut right to the chase. I told her that I didn't follow. We'd planned our moves thoroughly and picked good targets. Would she rather the police were knocking on our parents' doors looking for us? She took a long look at me and then stared out the window at the falling snow while she sipped her coffee. I don't know. When she finally spoke, I could barely hear her over the din of people ordering and studying for their finals. It just seems strange, doesn't it? Though the notion had never struck me until that moment, as soon as she gave voice to it, a sediment of suspicion began sifting down through my stomach, settling at the bottom in a dense pile of wet, clumpy loam, the soil which would gestate and, in a few months' time, sprout the seed of paranoia, which in subsequent years has spread its vast and twisted network of roots and branches thoroughly through every inch of vein and artery acting like a second nervous system. Like, it shouldn't be so easy to do the stuff we're doing. That's what I can't stop thinking. It isn't so easy. Maybe that's what they want you to think. Maybe that's half their defense. Maybe it is easier than you think. 
She shook her head, like she'd already thought of that possibility and dissuaded herself of it a long time ago. It felt a little sorry for me that I was lagging so far behind. And on the other hand, she wished it could be so. I was a little envious of my apparent naivete. They have cameras everywhere. They have microphones in our pockets. But how many people does it take to watch and listen to everyone's shit all of the time? I said. You'd need to hire as many spies as people you're spying on. How do you know you aren't doing their job for them? That their whole strategy isn't just convincing people that they're all-seeing and all-powerful before they even get a notion to step out of line. Everyone gets caught in the end, she said. You only hear about them if they get caught, and only the dumb ones get caught. You've met cops before. We're not exactly up against Mensa. She hung her head forward so that the steam from her coffee curled run her face and spoke into the cup. Everyone gets caught in the end, she said. What if we're not dealing with normal cops? You're talking, what, FBI? I leaned forward. There was something in the way she looked at me then. You're talking about a, a plant? She stood up, gathered her things. Can I be honest, she said. It's a little concerning that the thought never even crossed your mind until now. When we met in January, Teddy came with news. They were going to be bulldozing nearly 70 acres of virgin forest a few miles out of town as soon as the ground thawed in order to build a massive server farm for some NGO none of us had ever heard of. They're plugging it straight into the coal power plant and they're going to draw as much power as the entire town does in a year in one week. We all agreed that it was a worthy target, but as the meeting broke and everyone went our separate ways, Audrey's eyes met mine, only briefly, as if to say, simply, well? The night before the operation, Teddy called us all together for a last-minute meeting in his father's basement. He'd moved his drum kit down and converted it into his own apartment. He tossed a small duffel bag on the floor at our feet. That's $50,000, he said. We are going to bury this tonight. Now, I'm not planning on anything going wrong tomorrow, and I hope none of you all are either. But last night, I had a dream. In my dream, my mother came to me. Some of you might not know it, because I don't like to talk about it much, but my mother died when I was in third grade. I was in... A department store. It may have been J.C. Penney's, but all of the signage on the walls was gone. You could tell it had been there, though, from the circles and squares baked onto the wall where the paint looked a lot fresher. Like J.C. Penney's had up and left and someone else bought the place and just left it as it was, thinking maybe folks wouldn't even notice that the J.C. Penney's was gone. And it was weird. There were no aisles or any variation to the layout. Just those standard round floor racks with the forearms, evenly spaced and draped full with sports coats and blouses and such as far as that I could see. I remember there was this constant low staticky noise, as if the PA system was on, but someone had forgotten to flip over the record once it finished playing. But I had this very real sense that there was someone on the other end of that noise, sitting in a dark office somewhere in front of the microphone, 
just listening. I was sure they were listening to me. Otherwise, there was nobody else in the store. At least, nobody that I could see. But it went on so far that I guess I couldn't be sure. All I knew was that I needed to find my mother. She had something very important to tell me. So I searched and I searched. Eventually, I pushed apart some winter jackets and there she was, sitting in the center of the rack with her arms around her knees. I could tell she'd been crying. When she looked at me, I could tell it was hard for her not to start up crying again. I'm scared, she said to me. They're going to fire me. Then she pulled me in close by my shirt and whispered in my ear. Beneath the last Christmas tree, she said. He looked around the room at all of us. So we're going to bury this money and tell no one about it, ever. Not your boyfriend, not your parents, not your future wife or current husband or the cops or the president of the United States. And in case anyone gets pinched tomorrow, you can do your time knowing that there's a little something waiting for you when you get out. He thought that the dream was a bad omen, so we all drove to the Christmas tree farm outside of town where he'd cut down their Christmas tree the year before his mom died. There was only a fraction of a moon in the sky that night, so we had to park our car's headlights to shine on the crooked old oak beneath which we buried the money. Teddy muttered something under his breath, as if he were repeating some short phrase over and over. But though it sounded by its rhythm and intonation for all the world like he was speaking English, the words would not avail themselves to me. They rang, somehow, completely foreign off my ear to the point that I could not tell if the problem was with the words or inside my own slowly melting brain. And then he pulled out a knife. I want us all to make a blood oath here tonight. He wasted no time in cutting his own palm. An oath against your own life that you will tell nobody of this money, that nobody will touch this money except for the person who needs it. The person who earns it. We all cut our palms and spilled some blood onto the pile of freshly turned earth. The next day's operation started as smoothly as any of the previous. I was lying underneath the last bulldozer which I'd been assigned, cutting and loosening and smashing whatever I could reach, when I heard the unfamiliar voice shouting. I nearly smacked my head on the undercarriage, but the voice was far enough away that I knew it was not directed at me. I guessed that it was Jordan they'd found, a cop barking orders. I found Audrey and Elena lurking silently in the tall grass. Teddy was already waiting at the rendezvous point. We could hear more voices. They seemed to be spreading out. They got Jordan, I said, out of breath. Someone's got to go back for him, said Elena. Why, so two of us can go to jail, said Audrey. We are all going to jail if we don't give them something, said Teddy. Listen to that. There's at least two dozen cops out there. They'll be after us with dogs. They'll fly us down in helicopters. Audrey and Elena both turned to look at me. In my stomach, I knew what I had to do. But my brain did not want to let me say it. So I turned it off for a second. I'll do it, I said. Everyone seemed a little shocked. And for a long moment, nobody said anything, which put a pit in my stomach. Are you sure? said Audrey. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell them it was just us two. You guys make it to the woods. You should have plenty of time to you should have plenty of, you should have plenty of time to get out of here. I had to work to keep my voice from shaking. Teddy put his hand on my shoulder. I can do it, he said. Our eyes met. And then he stood up and took off toward the voices. I saw him put his hands up before he disappeared over a small rise in the land. And then a moment later, frenzied shouting, and an engine roared to life. Teddy managed to commandeer a bulldozer into the broadside of a police car and nearly flip it before they opened fire and winged him in the ear. Jordan caught up with us in the woods. Teddy had given himself up and been arrested, but in all of the chaos Jordan had been able to slip away. My parents were out of town for the weekend, so we went to my house and cut the handcuffs off him with my dad's hacksaw. It took almost an hour. We didn't see much of each other after that. Audrey and I graduated about a month later. Before the year was out, I'd worked myself into a pretty substantial hole gambling. A few weeks before Christmas, I received an email from an anonymous address, a photo of my parents' house. I really began to feel trapped then, like a heavy weight on my chest was making it difficult to breathe, even when I was just sitting in my bed. The next day, I parked on an access road and hiked about ten minutes into the tree farm. The air was crisp, but not uncomfortable. The TV was predicting the first snow of the season for later that afternoon. A few families were scattered about, but the big crooked oak was fairly secluded from all of them. I was a good way into my digging when I heard a familiar voice, which I was unable to place. I nearly dropped the shovel. I think they want you to cut him down, not dig him up. Even on turning around, I could not place the face of the middle-aged man who was speaking to me, though his smile was friendly and familiar. It was not until Jordan appeared around the bend with his mother and sister that I recognized the man as his father. I waved and said hello. My eyes met Jordan's then, though I could only bear to hold his gaze for a moment. I explained something about working at the tree farm to his dad, and then they all went on their way. Teddy had gone to trial in October and been convicted on all charges, though his lawyers had managed to talk the prosecutor down from terrorism. He was set to do ten and a half years in the state pen, ten for everything at the construction site, and another six months for an incident in which all of the animals were released from a local animal shelter where the strays were euthanized after thirty days, which he confessed to while on the witness stand, unprompted, this got picked up by the news and the internet, and over the coming weeks he became something of a minor folk hero. Jordan was the only member of the group to ever visit Teddy in prison, at least as far as I knew. I'm sure the sight of him brought some acid cocktail of guilt and gratitude to a fizzle in his brain. How much loyalty did he feel to the guy? I can only guess at these questions now, and I stayed up day and night in agony. My stomach hurt all the time. I was vomiting at least once a day from sheer nerves. I ate more antacid than food. It didn't help that I'd picked up something of a drug habit by then to go with all of the gambling. I stayed awake, unable to sleep for two days and two nights, and on the third morning I remembered that Jordan often went for runs early mornings at the old reservoir on the edge of town, where at least he had when we were in school, and he did a season on the cross-country team.
I arrived just before sunup and parked in the far corner of the remote parking lot, beneath the drooping, outstretched wing of an old evergreen. I did a bump off the dashboard for focus and stepped out into the chilly morning air, the type of chill that tightens your skin and steals your breath from your lungs, first light of day tinged on the horizon. The world was silent, as if all the trees were holding their breath till the disk of the sun broke the plain, and not one could be bothered to glance back over their shoulder and recognize my presence, even just to shoot me an annoyed look, even when I threw shut the car door in the stillness seemed hardly disturbed. I began the trek up to the observation point, which looked out over both the parking lot and the reservoir as well as the town, nestled cozily into the landscape below at a quaint distance. Each footstep in the gravel felt like it was intruding on something. The Germans invented speed, and then they conquered all of Western Europe in a few months. In those days, I was mostly using it to fuel all-night gaming sessions. I had a job as the IT guy's assistant at my dad's job. It was a shattering revelation to me at the time just how tired a compulsory eight hours of doing very little or even nothing can leave you. I was also in the early stages of coming to terms with my status in the world as just another person, just someone who wakes up and goes to work every day. I'm still not sure that I have. I was starting at 8 every morning, but the 90-minute commute forced me to be out the door at 6.30. I couldn't even drive with my dad because he didn't start until 9.30, and the company was unable to change either schedule. But rather than going to bed at a reasonable hour, I insisted on staying up, often until it was time to get dressed and leave. I felt acutely the fact that my life was not my own in that chunk of the day which I spent at work, and in a streak of stubborn, self-defeating resilience, could not countenance simply coming home from the office, eating dinner, showering, and perhaps watching most of a half-hour TV show before resigning my consciousness and waking up well-rested eight hours later, ready to return to the office and revoke once more ownership of my time and body. Well-rested for who? I saw the next sixty years splayed out before me on my commute like a horror show, my life over before it had even begun. My suffering and struggling to stay awake as I watched every second tick by on the clock became an act of personal resistance. I felt as deeply as I felt the need to eat or piss the need to have something of me in each day, something irrefutably mine, even if that meant bleary-eyed exhaustion every morning, or nodding off in the afternoon and feeling every beating tick of the clock's second hand like a pinprick in the ass, only 16,000 more until I could go home. How many more would make a week, how many a month, a lifetime? How many till I'm 65, till I'm unrecognizable, till I'm a different person, can retire and go die? Because, as I soon discovered, I could also do speed during the day to compensate and get through work, and so soon I was being squeezed at both ends. It was there to help me work, and then it was there to help me unwind from work. Either way, everything, I soon realized, revolved around work, or speed, whether doing it or avoiding it, or recovering from doing it or avoiding it. I had a difficult time in conversations, even explaining what exactly it was that the company actually did. As his armies motored toward France, General Heinz Guderian ordered that his tankers go a minimum three nights at a time sans sleep as a standard. I've gone three nights without sleep, and still, or perhaps because of this fact, the whole thing is nigh inconceivable in my mind. 
to be expected to fight for your life on that third morning? Crammed neck bent into a baking metal box with four other men, their uniforms sweated through so many times the fabrics nearly stiff straight, bouncing and rattling over that haunted land, a graveyard spanning all the known world from horizon to horizon. You haven't slept since Sunday. If you raise your head too fast, you'll smack your skull on two feet of solid steel. Your teeth itch, and your heart's beating so loud you can barely hear the squeal of the tiger treads, trying not to puke. God forbid, as you choke down another panzer chocolate. Imagine it in the other direction. Poor Poles. Those poor Danes. The Dutch in their tulip fields. To wake to find these horsemen of the apocalypse descending from the hills and black forests belching smoke. These raving meth-mad Aryan freaks, blue berserker eyes, bloodshot and bleary with murder. I was soon joined on the summit of that hill by a bird somewhere in the trees to my back, and then several more in song, in what I fancied to be calls and responses. I tried whistling after them in mimic, and their responses seemed to answer mine, though maybe I imagined that. The sky was light enough now to show on the surface of the water, the backup supply for the entire county. The sun's rays landed first on the exposed red clay of the cliff face, which constituted the far border of the reservoir. It seemed almost to glow in the direct light. It was not long after sunrise when Jordan's car pulled into the parking lot. He parked near the base of the trail and turned off his engine. I could not see him from the angle that the sun was hitting his windshield, and he sat there for a long time. I was confident that he couldn't see me where I was tucked away in some bushes but then realized that he must have recognized my car. The sun-bleached roof gathering a small pile of pine needles. After almost five minutes, I heard his engine roar back to life. His headlights blinked on, and he drove away, showing no sign of urgency, except that he did not stop or signal at the exit and pulled directly onto the empty road. After that, things began to seem much more urgent. I tried to think ahead and envision the next reasonable time that I could encounter Jordan alone, and they all seemed impossibly distant, seen through a glass darkly, for if I was to wait long enough to fulfill any of them, then worldly events would intervene in the meantime and obviate the whole line of thinking anyways. If he hadn't told Teddy about the tree farm before, then he'd be making a priority of it now. If he was smart, he'd have told Elena and even Audrey about it already, but you never could reliably count on Jordan for smart. Loyal, funny in spades, can bring a dose of levity into everything, but sometimes he wondered. I hurried over to the high school. It was well known between our friends that the locks on Jordan's car doors stopped working months ago. You have to go around and press each door lock down manually, and even then make sure that it is actually locked. Something Jordan normally took the time to do, but he had a well-documented streak of forgetfulness with these things. Most people in his situation would leave nothing in their car for anyone to steal. Jordan took the opposite, but evidently equally effective tact of filling every available space in his car besides the driver's seat with untold amounts of bullshit and daring someone to sort through it long enough to find something worth stealing. Old McDonald's bags filled with wrappers and ashes, a small avalanche of unlabeled CDs, many excessively and mysteriously sticky. 
Several exploded ketchup packets hidden in a torrent of wadded napkins, a handful of tennis balls, no fewer than 50 empty water bottles and other assorted drinking containers, a dirty blanket, five worn socks, a pair of sunglasses with one of the lenses missing, an empty bottle of hair gel missing its cap, the gel having all leaked out and ossified in the floor mat long ago. All of it lightly embalmed in dog hair, the only cash on hand being the handful of pennies glued to the bottom of the cup holder. I sank into the muck behind the driver's seat and tossed the blanket over myself. It was lucky that it was not hot outside, or I really would have suffered. It occurred to me then, as my heart finally began to settle a bit, listening to my own hot breathing and feeling my own hot breath land back on my face, that it actually mattered very much whether or not Jordan had already told Elena or Audrey about our encounter at the tree farm. If he went missing or turned up dead, there would simply be no question about the culprit and his motives in their minds. Stealing money was one thing. Murder would escalate the entire situation, my entire reality, into an entirely different stratosphere. Would it be enough to motivate either of the girls to out themselves as members of a criminal, nay, terrorist conspiracy? All I could do was guess at what each of them would do. But as soon as school let out, Jordan would be on his way to the prison to tell Teddy about the missing money, and Teddy, busy doing his time, might not find the leap from theft to murder quite as unthinkable, might consider the two to be fairly natural dance partners, even, where such a large sum of money was involved. More than the money itself was the stake in the future it represented, unquantifiable. And of course there was the trust, which at that point had been irreparably broken, possibly. It all depended on who knew what. It was also possible that that trust, which acted like a mighty stalwart dam holding back untold hordes, torrents which threatened at all hours to crash through and flood the tiny peaceful towns in the valley, which were each of our lives, had at this point merely sprung a particularly ominous leak which simply needed urgent plugging. Either way, action was required. The moment called for boldness, for decisions to be made. Whether I saved everyone or led myself to ruin was almost, almost, a secondary concern at that point. All I knew was that I would no longer let my life be dictated to me. It started just after three with a few distant voices. Within minutes, the parking lot around me was in the throes of madness, laughter, screaming, engines and car horns all sliding one on top of another, constantly relayering themselves in my ears so that one moment a car horn blared directly behind me and then a moment later a handful of girls were passing between Jordan's car and its neighbor, their intermingling conversations floating by just above my head. Minutes passed and the high tide of chaos began to roll back. The laughter thinned out and only the occasional car was heard to leave the parking lot. But still, Jordan did not appear. Had he seen me out a window? Had he told someone at school? Was he somehow already on his way to the prison in someone else's car? The light began to dissipate not long after four, and when the streetlights came on, I remembered. He had basketball practice. My anxiety receded, but only for a moment, as the old reality and all its implications quickly crept back in, a reality which a part of me had been relieved to think for the previous hour might have been avoidable after all. This was, of course, the preferred outcome in any scenario in which I had to do something which I nonetheless did not want to do, to make an honest effort of it, and then be prevented from doing the thing by circumstances wildly out of my control. 
To have both the guiltless conscience and to have not done the thing. To have someone else cancel Friday night plans I've been dreading all day. A car door unlocked somewhere in the near distance, then another a little farther away. I flinched when Jordan opened his door, and an icy wave washed over my entire body, gripping my muscles in place. I knew immediately that he did not suspect me from the voyeuristic thrill that floated over me. Hearing the way he breathed when he thought nobody was around, hearing the way he blew his nose or smacked his lips, what was the first thing he did in his first truly private moment since 7 o'clock that morning? It was more intimate than sex. I have heard of soldiers who, when surveilling a target, will not look directly at any of the people they are tracking, but rather will focus their vision on the target's feet or some feature of the environment around the target so as not to trigger in the target that acute feeling of being observed. From one moment to the next, I felt the complexion of the atmosphere inside the car shift. Whether he'd noticed some imperceptible shift in the arrangement of his garbage or something of my foreign pheromones had registered in his subconscious I knew not, but for a moment we each held our breath and I could feel the animal hairs on the back of his neck standing up, sensitive to every grazing mode of dust. The decision had been made long ago, in another lifetime. The time to think had passed. I tried to clear all higher thought processes from my mind, nothing but ones and zeros. Go and stop. Hesitation and second-guessing meant death. Now is the time to act. Thus began my period of isolation, which has lasted more or less uninterrupted my entire adult life unto the present. I dumped Jordan in the reservoir and spent the night in my bedroom, packing, and left just before sunup without waking my parents. I preferred knowing nothing at all to knowing that I'd chosen incorrectly, to opening up door number two and stepping through it and living in a world created by my choices, so instead I simply opted out and left the world behind. As far as anyone in town was concerned, the most you could say about either myself or Jordan was that both of us just disappeared sometime in the night and each of us was never seen again in equal measure. A month ago I received a vanilla envelope from Audrey in the mail. It was addressed to Dean Howard, the name I've gone by for the past 16 years. The summer before sophomore year, I volunteered for Howard Dean's campaign for president. What a strange kid I was. High school kids should not be investing themselves in electoral politics. They should be having sex or trying to and driving aimlessly around town in a minivan till one in the morning smoking weed out of apples. I was nearly lightheaded as I ascended the stairs to my apartment with the envelope in hand. As I locked and deadbolted the door, I realized that the last thing I could remember was the mailroom. I had no memory even of climbing the stairs. It was as if I regained consciousness and came to in my apartment. I had no idea how Audrey had known where I was or who. I told no one. I'd spoken to no one. There was a clean and untraversable line between the life I had now and the life I had led up until that day at the reservoir. There was frost on the grass the morning I left. They scaled back the search after three days and did it after two weeks. They gave me a funeral six months later. I drew the shades shut. The letter sat on the kitchen table for hours like a bomb. On opening it the following morning, I found inside a coupon to the local hardware store. Half off fertilizer. 
a newspaper clipping about a leaking oil pipeline somewhere in North Dakota. I turned the coupon over and found written in black marker the word Croatoan. I spent the next few days researching. The government had, prior to the leak, demanded that the oil company shut down the pipeline within eight years. The company promised to do it in 15. That was 20 years ago. Maybe they need a little reminder, a nudge in the right direction. Signed, A. I could picture perfectly in my head the way she'd smile when she said it, all cheap and sleazy and sort of cocked to the left. A few days later, my phone rang. Did you get my letter? I realized in that moment that I could not remember, not even a little, what Audrey's voice had sounded like. You should come find me soon. She hung up before I could respond. She was not difficult to find. A couple of days later, I was sitting in her driveway. I sat there for a long time. I hadn't considered until that moment that she might be married already. She might even have kids. In fact, she was living with her parents. Her mother's ashen face, peering out from behind the cherry red front door, drew taut and grim when I mentioned Audrey's name. Are you joking? Her voice sounded as if she hadn't spoken aloud in many days. Why would I be joking? She studied me, her jaw canted firmly. Audrey died a week ago. I believe she must have read my shock as genuine, and her guard slackened and countenance warmed, if only by a fraction. Go find a newspaper. I'm sure you can read ten stories all about her. I told her that I'd been a friend of Audrey's in college and gave her my condolences. I told her I was staying at the Pines Reach Motel on 30 if she wanted to talk. Audrey's envelope had reached me on a Friday. Her body was found early morning Tuesday prior by a jogger at the reservoir who spotted her neon sports bra amongst the tumble of rocks at the base of the overlook. Cue a closed casket, of course, and a whole lot of folks in town who think she was pushed. The following day, I paid a visit to the reservoir, but found almost a dozen other people milling about on the overlook, and, fearing one of them might recognize me, went for lunch instead. I'm not sure what I thought I'd find. That night, someone knocked on my door. It was Audrey's mother. Even in the rain, I could tell she'd been crying. They're ruling it a suicide, she said, ending the investigation. I invited her in, and she sat on the edge of the bed. Not even an accident. Suicide. Case closed. She looked me in the eye for the first time since she'd arrived. I feel like I'm going fucking crazy. I asked her what did she mean. It's impossible. Audrey would not have killed herself. I know they say, you know, people can hide things, this and that. You never know. Well, she didn't kill herself. I know that. Anyone who knew her knows that. But they make her out to be some head case. They cherry-pick little details. She just wasn't. That wasn't her at all. Sure, she was frustrated with where she was at in her career, but she had a vacation to Acapulco coming next month. Nobody believes me about any of this. I feel like I can't talk to anyone in town. They make me feel like a lunatic. Like they're just humoring me, waiting for the right time to collectively let me down. Like they don't know the same girl we both knew the day before. All they can talk about is depression this, depression that. Anyone can be suicidal, but it's bullcrap. And now... 
Her voice broke for a moment and she dealt with a fast escaping tear. Instead of trying to find who killed my girl, I'm expected to smile and accept this lie about her because it can't be fought no matter how right I am and nothing, nothing can be changed. She's only a memory now and folks can barely keep their own memories straight. She paced the room a few times and lit up a cigarette. It's alright if I smoke? I shrugged. Please be honest with me, she said. You were her friend, yeah? Do you honestly think that she wanted to kill herself? I fought back a lump in my throat. No, I choked out. I don't think she did. Audrey's mom left a little while after that and I lay awake in bed listening to the rain and watching the ceiling shadow play of drops running down the window. My thoughts flowed in every direction, but all of them, inevitably, led back to Teddy. Teddy served six years of his ten-year sentence before being let out on parole. Within a year, he'd managed to parlay his brief prior stint in the spotlight into a TV show and the much less ephemeral celebrity he enjoys these days. At some point, I fell asleep, and when my room phone rang, I recognized his voice instantly. I think I'd been dreaming of him. I thought at first that I might be dreaming still. It was morning. There were birds chattering outside my window. He said that he wanted to see me. He was back in town for Audrey, and her mother had told him about me. He said that they had opened the bar at his hotel early on his behalf, and that he would be there for the next couple of hours. Then he hung up. While my picture of Audrey held her forever as she was when I knew her best, this Teddy felt as separate from my teenage memory of him as I was from my old high school self. His invitation on the phone felt like a missive from some higher plane of reality than our own, the realm of the famous, the people on TV who are somehow more fully people than we are watching at home, reaching down to pluck me up out of my paltry shadow existence for some purpose the likes of which I could not wrap my intellect around any more than a gnat can conceive of you or me as a living conscious being whom they are annoying rather than simply as a large feature of the geography, or even as the constitutive parts, the dense forests of the hair, the gentle sloping hill of the nose, which, occasionally, by some unfathomable cosmic logic, judged it proper that they should be smited instantly, blinked out of existence from one moment to the next with a thunderclap of its mighty hands. I thought over his invitation. Having finally stuck my head up for a minute after more than a decade and a half, it was hard not to view everything through a lens of intense paranoia and mistrust, to see detectives and feds and every person on the street who met my eyes for a beat too long. But if they wanted to arrest me, they would have just sent the cops and arrested me. I decided to meet Teddy. He wrong-footed me almost as soon as I stepped through the door. He smiled, shook my hand cordially, and said hello, asked how I was, then took his place at the bar and, after allowing me a moment to order, dove right into a project he'd been working on for the past several years. No talk of Audrey, no talk of prison, no mention of the years which had passed between us without so much as a word. He spoke as if our lives had not completely diverged since we last met, as if there were no missing $50,000, as if Jordan wasn't tied to a bag of bricks at the bottom of the reservoir. Have you seen my show? I told him that I had. A few years ago, I partnered with Silver Star on this incredible project that I'm doing. The oil company? I know what you're thinking, but it actually makes sense for both parties. 
See, they get everyone's favorite animal guy, Mr. Nature Lover himself. Not exactly as the face of their company, see, but as someone who people trust, being like, you know, give these guys a chance, give them some time. You know, they get it, and they're working on it. They're making improvements. And you get the grin that spread across his face then transported me right back to the passenger seat of his Honda Accord, smoking weed and eating Wendy's in the parking lot of a high school. Glad you asked. I think you're really going to love this part. Three years ago, my network approached me and asked if I wanted to do some real environmental work with some real resources behind it. I told them of course I did. Then, they asked me how I felt about polar bears. I told them that I love them and would die happy if I never had to meet one again. They said, great. How would you like to lead a project to transplant a hundred of them things to the South Pole? Their thinking was, you see, everyone loves polar bears, right? And everyone gets sad when they see them all shitty and dirty and emaciated looking and clinging to a little ice floe that's melting faster than you can say Coca-Cola. So what if... What if they stopped polluting long enough to let the North Pole get cold in the winter? He gave me a quick raise of his eyebrow and a good-natured look that was as if to say, Ha, huh, well, obviously, you and I know this. Maybe even they know it. But we also know that option is not exactly on the table right now. And then he continued forward as if I hadn't spoken. What if we took a trial group of bears and gave them a chance to establish a foothold for their species in Antarctica? There's no reason they shouldn't be there, after all. It's cold. A lot of ice and seals, except that they could never get there before. But God gave us boats and helicopters and a nagging conscience, so that's as good as a land bridge 50,000 years ago, as far as we're concerned. Like, uh, think of it like people trying to establish a colony for ourselves on Mars. Just a fail-safe, a backup option in case the current environment proves unviable in the future. Don't you think that if God wanted us on Mars, there'd be air there? I was loath to bring God into it, but he had started it. He gave us this planet, an actual Garden of Eden. Maybe we ought to just figure out how to not fuck that up. I don't disagree with you, my old friend. But this buys the bears perhaps another hundred years for us to get those rodeo clowns in Washington sorted out. Maybe we aren't... Maybe we aren't here to win the fight, you know? Maybe we have to give up our vision of ourselves as heroes. Maybe our role here is simply keeping the fight alive. Keeping the flame burning for one more night. So that our children and our children's children can reach the promised land someday. Have you ever thought that if there is a God, maybe he made us to act as his steward on earth? That the reason our brains are so big is so that we can see the bigger picture of what's happening and take care of the environment on his behalf? Guided in the right direction? He finished his drink and then ordered another and looked at his watch. What if we are, he said, and sort of squint frowned. I don't know. What if we are guiding the planet along the right track? And this is just what it looks like. Nothing lasts forever. Things move in cycles. The planet was way hotter before. Maybe what we're experiencing now is just the end of a blip of abnormal coldness. And it's just a hot planet that's meant to be hot. <laughs> what if we're bringing back the dinosaurs and we don't even know it yet? 
by turning the earth into a living hell? He studied me closely then, in a way that openly invited my knowledge of my own scrutiny. He thanked the bartender for his fresh drink, then took a sip and gestured toward me with the glass still in his hand. They're really going to like you, he said. I asked him what he was talking about. The study, he said. When we regained the radio signal from the polar bear collars this past spring, a few of them were missing and unaccounted for. So we're mounting an expedition next month to check in on the population, take some data, and find the missing animals. Our crew needs one more member. I made no attempt to hide my skepticism. I had to pull a lot of favors to get my choice for this last slot. Trust me, there's a stack of resumes and recommendations on my desk a foot high for folks who could lose three of their advanced degrees in a house fire and still be twice as qualified for this as you. So why me, then? He shrugged, as if it was so obvious that it hadn't even been a decision. I nodded and told him that I would have to think about it, but that I appreciated the offer. He paid for both our drinks, gave me a hug, and left. But I was lying. I'd already thought about it, and I'd made up my mind right there at the bar. I would travel to Antarctica with Teddy Lyons, and there, I would kill him. The day before the expedition was to leave, a driver knocked on my door and drove me to the airport. The whole crew convened that night in Ushuaia. There were six of us in total, and we ate a late dinner at a seafood place of some local renown. A feast, really. All in our party gathered around one table, swapping stories and laughing after a few rounds of beer, and the manager popping out every few minutes to personally attend to Teddy's wishes and assure us that it was no problem at all that we were keeping him open well past their normal hours. Are you Teddy's porter, then? One of the men asked me. I did not know how to answer him, but Teddy stepped in with a smile and a hand on my shoulder and said, Officially speaking. The next morning, before dawn, Teddy knocked on the door of my hotel room. I was already awake. We collected the rest of the crew on our way down to the lobby and piled into the van, waiting for us outside. Another, full of our luggage and equipment, followed us the few blocks to the dock. The silhouettes of the mountains loomed over us like titans in every direction except the one we were headed, the nose of the van, tilting ever downward, toward the salty, briny smell which permeated everything. The placid water, the mournful gonging from a distant buoy, still invisible in the utter darkness of the pre-dawn sea, gnawed away a chasm deep in my stomach. the end of all known things. Millennia of recorded history. Billions of lives played out in their entirety across the six continents upon which I had turned my back. The simple smallness of the place, almost sparse. The loneliness of the morning. Humanity had stretched civilization as far as it would carry, 
and here it finally dwindled into nothing. A state of nature awaited somewhere on the other side of all that chopping water, though it seemed equally, in the ochre darkness of the bus, to be oblivion. Street lamp shadows fell and cycled past. The day's first light filtered into the uniform blackness of the sky over the water to the east so that I could begin to discern the contours of the void. The North Atlantic is large and can be brutish, but sailing from London, you will find New York on the other end. What I was now looking out across was not only nothing, but a nothingness of unknown quantity or quality. I could set off straight in the direction I was facing and sail and sail and sail and not find another soul, not even the suggestion that another soul had come this way before me. The emptiness was so vast and all-consuming that it carried its own gravity, like a black hole of the human soul. The place on the old sailing charts where latitude and longitude fade gently into the oblivion of blank parchment, where the sea monsters of the amygdala take flesh. Our vessel was a modest but hardy-looking icebreaker, her bottom half painted a very scientific orange. There were four crewmen on the deck to greet us. I paused on the gangway a moment and peered down into the oil-dark water, my eye caught by a few glimpses of silver, which I thought at first might be merely the reflection of some nearby car headlight, but were in fact subtle streaks of speckled fur on the belly of an otter, wheeling on her back in broad, easy loops, her figure beveled where it met the water by a pearlescent lip, and on her belly she carried a baby. The fellow's squirming, fitful little movement must have been what caught my peripheral attention, so contrary to his mother's. His face, too, all scrunched and consternated as if fraught with some ugly dream, was the exact opposite of his mother's smile of sublime contentment. Her eyes, squeezed shut in two beatific lines, perhaps because she had no need for seeing men, so great was her happiness, so perfect and profound the happiness inside her at that moment that seeing anything at all would only have diluted her bliss. Such considerations did not keep her, however, from tilting her chin forward now and then to check on her child, her small paw breaking the black mirror of the water to ruffle here and there at his fur. At this, my breath caught in my throat. It felt as if a wide green valley were opening between my ribcage. That ineffable feeling which overcomes us on seeing something in an animal, which reminds us so closely of ourselves or our own mothers, which is really a sensation of communion, the fleeting epiphany of the oneness of all things, the momentary dissolution of the barriers between oneself and everything else, which can be called up and articulated or mauled over any old time, but is only truly felt on a stratum beneath language, beneath the conscience which that language constructs for those brief interludes of grace. I myself have experienced such happiness perhaps two or three times in my life. The moment that you recognize such happiness is the instant at which it becomes corrupted and begins to die, to wither on the vine under scrutiny and analysis. Already you are a layer removed from the direct experience of the moment, reduced to an observer and a recorder. This is nice, you think. I should savor this. The jealous futility of language, stepping between you and the life around you to corral an infinite beauty into its grasp. And so you pluck the thing and dry it and store it away in the cellar with the other raisins to be gone back to and enjoyed whenever you please, removed from all context, already gathering something of a whiff of all the other raisins on it, a sterile sameness seeping into everything. This did not seem to be so much of an issue for the mother. 
but when she lifted her head, she broke the still fixedness of my attention, and I saw what must have been a dozen more like her, careening about this way and that in their joyous cursive, many with babes of their own. They drew their wakes upon the glassy, multicolored starscape, the rippled winking lights of the yawning city reflected and refracted around them like an acid dance floor for their watery ballet, fading into a pastel dream before my eyes as the encroaching daylight washed them away. Teddy introduced me to the captain, a somewhat shriveled, diminutive old man named Captain Hayward. My entire arm buckled beneath the grip of his handshake. He smiled at me pleasantly. Pleasure to have you aboard. Don't let your eyes fool you. Teddy smacked the railing twice for good measure. She punches well above her weight class. Have you lost your sea legs there, Mr. Lyons? I'm not sure I ever had them to begin with. He clapped the captain on the back and then showed me to our cabin. We sailed calm seas beneath clear blue skies for the entirety of the first day, and at a few points, as beautiful as it was watching the water pass by across our hull, I was forced to retire for fifteen or twenty minutes to my cabin or some other darkish place, just to look at something besides the sun for a while. The weather held all through that first night, and in the morning the captain announced that we were making time well ahead of schedule. Not long after lunch, a splotch of clouds appeared to the west along an otherwise unblemished horizon, which ran in 360 degrees all around us and seemed to comprise all the known world. Those moody clouds, which consumed more of the visible sky with every passing minute, seemed to me like the angel Lucifer, whose rebellion from God was so appalling, not simply in the evil it introduced into the world, but for its absolutely startling otherness, its ability to introduce something else into a world which had for all of time never known anything but itself as it was a wrong note and an eternal harmony i stood on the deck and watched their approach until the seas grew so choppy that i felt i could be tossed clear of the ship at any moment into their foaming maw like a cutlet of steak thrown by the lion trainer without a second thought in a world which has been so domesticated, in a life which feels so controlled at all times, there is a perverse thrill in being reminded that there are forces which yet exist beyond any hope of control, and different forces strong enough to uproot a man's entire life in the time it takes his heart to beat. I grabbed tight to the railing with both hands and weathered two more jolts to give my mind the time and data to imagine what sort of death that would be. I saw myself frozen for a brief moment against the slate sky, tumbling end over end, until my back smacked against the crest of a wave with such force I thought for a moment that I might be bounced directly back over the railing and onto the boat, frozen shards of water slicing at my cheeks, but instead I was swallowed whole. My heart felt as if it might leap out of my throat and I thrashed around until I thought I saw daylight. I struggled, limbs flailing, towards the foamy torrent, but found my body ripped violently sidewards and crushed, driven downward by some impossible weight on my shoulders. My cheeks puffed madly, my eyes bulged with the realization that I would never breathe air again. I sunk downward then, down and down and down. I saw my arms and legs trailing above me in an impotent flurry of little bubbles, the only disturbance in this picture of perfect darkness lower and lower, the water heavier and heavier on my bones, the world darker and darker, salt water filling my nostrils, burning, filling my throat as the light slipped away, a mere memory, and soon I became just another piece of ephemera, a flake of dead skin, surface scraps, floating down into the great ancient depths of the world, 
to be devoured by some passing behemoth, or else torn and shredded by some hellish alien fish with red eyes and glowing teeth. The ship's cook, Mr. Rodney, had dinner on early, and the expedition's scientific crew were gathered in the common room, playing cards. Mr. Rodney was a stout, affable man, with a pockmarked face, who loved to eat and loved cooking significantly less, I learned, and so he made pot after pot of stew. I believe it was all that he served for the duration of our voyage, though he would serve it alongside toast and eggs in the mornings. Teddy invited me to the table, and I joined the game on the next hand. The haughty little ship was really contending with the swells now, and the rocking threw the lantern light across the walls in a wild kaleidoscope of grotesque shadows. Kurt, one of the company scientists, leaned forward over his hand and eyed Teddy with a twinkle and a small grin. There was a bit of Texas in his voice and in his jowls. Would you rather be facing a grizzly or a polar bear? Say you had to choose one. Mr. Rodney paced the halls of the ship, sprinkling crystalline pellets in the corners and cracks. For the rats, he'd seen me watching. Do I get a gun? Well, then what difference does it make if you're just going to drop them from 50 yards out anyways? What difference does it make if I'm dead either way? But if you had to choose? Let me ask you this. If you were a bear, would you rather be in a big, dense forest full of streams and salmon? Or on top of a fucking glacier? Well, shucks. When you put it that way, I suppose I'd rather be in the forest. There's your answer. Give me the brown bear. Maybe he's full. He took a swig of his beer. I once heard a story about a sled team up in remote Canada. A white bear got a whiff of him, stalked him for 12 days over the tundra. Took five dogs before they could chase it off. One of the guys had to be rushed all the way back to the hospital and ended up in intensive care for two weeks. Christ. Teddy shrugged. Nothing else on the menu. You'd be persistent too. Mr. Rodney went round ladling stew into all of our bowls. You wouldn't know anything about that, would you, Mr. Lyons? Teddy laughed. Oh, what's this? Sounds like a story, said Kurt. I think I know the one, said one of the ship's crew. He was beaming. That so? I don't see how you could. I've only ever told it at a party or two, and I don't recall that we've ever met till now. Let's just say someone is a very big fan of yours, Mr. Lyons. Kurt elbowed the young man in the ribs. I got the sense that Teddy did not find this so easy to laugh off as Kurt. It's a good one to pass such a miserable night, said Mr. Rodney. Teddy glanced at me with a reluctant smirk as if to say, Here we go. We were up in Alaska filming season two of Habitats. It was a two-month shoot, September-October, and for the last week we fly out to Grizzly Island for the salmon run to try and catch as much grizzly bear stuff as we can while they get fattened up for hibernation. So we seaplane in, get all the gear on the land, and hike to our little log cabin. First few days go great. We're getting tons of usable footage, and the bears are so busy eating that they barely even notice us. And then the weather turns, and it only gets worse with each passing day. 
till our scheduled final day rolls around and conditions aren't safe to fly and nobody can get a boat even close to the shore, at least for anything less than an absolute emergency, right? And of course, none of us want to think of it as an emergency at the time. We've got three days extra provisions and plenty of game in the area if it comes to that. The weather has to break eventually, right? He looked to Mr. Rodney with a grin. Anyone else ever been to Alaska? He asked. The weather don't have to do shit. Everyone laughed then. The river about a mile east of us where we'd seen a lot of the bears feeding flooded. The rain just went on and on and on and on and on and on. Soaked everything. We made a rack by the fire and that thing was full of socks day and night. People's feet pruned up and blistered, and if you didn't get to hold your feet near the fire for a while, you could go days at a time without feeling your toes. All our clothes were heavy and damp when we put them on, no matter how long they'd spent drying. The cabin had a couple of significant leaks in the roof, and by the second week in the place, it had become a real question in my mind every time I laid down to bed whether I'd fall asleep before the constant drip, drip, dripping water in the pots drove me insane. I worried sometimes about a few of the other guys, too. Like I'd wake up in the night and find them over me with an axe or something. Like they just couldn't take the dripping anymore, either, and snapped a few hours before I had the chance to. You gotta snap first in that situation, right? Right? To survive. They laughed again. But anyways, one morning, one of the camera assistants, a fellow named Tom, comes sprinting back from his morning piss and throws the cabin door shut behind him, starts trying to push chairs in front of it, tables, whatever he can get his hands on sort of deal. We're trying to talk to him and figure out what the hell's going on, but he just keeps muttering about the bears, the goddamn bears. Apparently, he'd gone a little farther out than he normally would have, just to walk a little while he smoked a cigarette. As soon as he finishes pissing, he zips up and turns around, and there's this mean, ragged-looking grizzly staring right at him. Silent as the trees in the fog, not twenty feet away. He keeps his nerve long enough to do the whole face of the bear move slowly sideways bit, but before he takes three steps, the bear charges him. Covered the ground like that. Knocked him straight on his ass. And then, he says, something in his brain remembered the bit about playing dead with brown bears. Says it felt like getting hit by a minivan. Knew right then that he had no hope in fighting back. So he rolled onto his stomach and covered his neck like they teach you, as this bear's wheeling around, and in another second, he can hear him snuffing right in his ear, that wet nose nudging the back of his neck, sniffing him up and down and trying to nudge him over onto his back. He said it sounded like being in a wind tunnel. The grizzlies take their meals with a little stink on them, you see. If they think you're dead, they'll kick some dirt over you and come back when you're a little... less fresh. The rot is their favorite spice, almost like it's the death that nourishes them. It was a miracle that that bear didn't kill him right then. The animal was skinny as all hell, he said. Damn near gaunt, the bastard must have been hungry. We figured him for a runt, maybe, or that he'd been bullied out of all good fishing spots and was left to subsist on whatever scraps he could manage to get his paws on. Or maybe he was sick. One of the PAs was looking out the window. There he is, a brown bear pacing around about a hundred feet from the front door of the cabin. His fur was all patchy. Tom insisted that it was a different bear, so now there are at least two hungry bears that were, at a minimum, curious of us and unafraid, 
and here not an hour earlier we'd been working on the notion that they'd all gone off to hibernate. We hadn't seen any for a few days by that point, so the fact that they were all over the place now struck us as odd, if not immediately, especially concerning. It was almost as if they'd been hiding, if you didn't know any better, you know. It was not long before someone called out that a third bear had joined the second. We could hear their grunting and growling inside the cabin as they tussled, feeling each other out, mouthing at each other and breaking into brief bouts of terrible wrestling. A lot of grappling, followed by intense, stomach-churning flurries of violence. We all had cans of bear mace if we were desperate and wanted to bother them. But one of the show's producers, let's call him Kevin, was the only one carrying anything heavier than that. He always wore his 44 Magnum on his hip out there. Between the eyes, it can stop a bear in his tracks, he'd say. Anywhere else and you're praying. Maybe you hit a vital organ. Maybe the bear dies six hours later midway through digesting you. Maybe it does nothing. He took the gun from the holster and inspected it. You could hear the tapping of the shell casings on the wood table as he reloaded the six rounds, one by one, his eyes never leaving the task, though he could have done it in his sleep. When a fourth bear was noticed, sniffing around the cabin, a few of us got to work constructing a makeshift crossbar to reinforce the door. Just in case, of course, just in case. It's crazy to even entertain the thought, we kept saying, but just in case. By that time, we had all finished our stew, and the clinking of the spoons and bowls had ceased, and the room was quiet, save for Teddy's low voice and the occasional distant cry of the wind, for the storm had mostly moved on. By that night, there were a half-dozen fully-grown grizzly bears and two adolescents circling our cabin. Every now and then, one of the younger, braver bears would wander right up to our cabin and sniff at the window or put his paw on the glass. We could hear them fighting and jockeying all through the night. I don't think any of us slept, though I must have gotten at least a few minutes because in the morning the door was gouged all over by deep claw marks, which I'd heard nothing of in the night. I remember growing up, my grandmother used to have this condo in Florida, and I'd go stay with her for a month every summer. The condo backed right up to a pond so she would make us lunch and we'd go down and eat on the steps to her porch and watch the gators. I really hated it. That's all I remember, was barely being able to eat my food because of how terrified I was. I mean, we were maybe 15 feet from the edge of the pond, nothing between my toes and the water but some green grass. And she'd say, if you're not going to eat it, at least let the ducks have it. But I didn't want to toss them anything because I thought if they moved it would attract the attention of the alligators. There was a big one who liked to hang out around there. My grandma told me that the trick to guessing a gator's length was by the distance between his eyes. I can't recall now exactly what the formula was, but I do remember that she thought this particular gator was a dozen feet snout to tail at least. You could always tell when it was him looking at you. His mean fucking lizard eyes just barely poking up out of the water. It's like you're constantly being stalked. That's what it felt like in that cabin. One day I remember, I must have been nine or ten, there was this skittish little dog being walked along the stretch of grass by the pond by some guy talking on the phone. By the time my grandmother felt it was prudent to yell for the guy's attention, it was too late. 
the water erupted. It sounded as if a sinkhole had opened up and the entire pond was being sucked violently downward. The poor dog didn't even have time for a full yelp. If I hadn't already been watching, I'd have missed it entirely. Every time we stepped out of the cabin, we felt like that dog. And you had to step out of the cabin every time you had to piss or shit or get water from the hand pump. Kevin began escorting us any time someone had to leave the cabin for any reason. He hated to do it after a while, but he'd rather that than give up his gun to anyone else, even for a second. Once he had to fire a warning shot while one of the PAs was taking a dump. All that bad helped him, said Mr. Rodney, and he smacked the table in silent laughter, causing the stew bowls and all of us to jump. We were all sitting around eating lunch. I remember because half of us threw our food in the air when it happened. Talking about, uh... Hockey, I think. It seems so strange now, looking back, that we could have had such a normal conversation. That we'd be talking about anything but the bears and the weather and the dwindling rations. But we were there for almost two weeks. It's a lot of time to kill. We spent most of it bullshitting, to tell you the truth. Interspersed with moments of acute terror. Like during that lunch when the bears started hurling their bodies full speed into the door. A few of them took turns, stumbling back a ways, and then charging straight for us, turning at the last second to throw their shoulder or rear at the target. Luckily, the door was set into the cabin in such a way that prevented the bears from ever landing a direct blow on it. But I assume they'd have been just as happy to bring the entire cabin down, and it sounded for a while like they might very well succeed. I tried to get a good look out the window. Were these bears foaming at the mouth? Were they sick? Mad? Or were they just really hungry? Was that cabin door the only thing standing between them and bedding down for the winter with a full stomach? As soon as they stopped, we immediately got on the radio. Without a word spoken, we all had agreed that it was time to declare ourselves an emergency. It took a few hours, but we finally got a hold of someone and scheduled a pickup for the next morning as it was almost dark by then. Short days, long nights, and none longer than that final one. Firstly, it was ungodly cold, and around dinner time, one of the bears took his paw and busted a giant hole in one of the windows, so that even beneath two blankets a man, and with the wood stove burning at capacity, we never felt dry or warm. Not really. Not in our souls. Kevin unholstered the pistol when that happened, but as the bear immediately limped away to nurse his paw, we were able to convince him not to open fire. Some of our best footage, in fact, we shot during those days either through the window or standing in the doorway. We found that filming gave our minds something else to focus on besides the bear. That being at work allowed all of us to adopt this collective delusion that everything was normal, even if the sheen of mental protection and fortitude it offered was little more than a piddly layer of topsoil which would be blown away by the slightest breeze the second any one of us dared to look the situation in the eye. As dusk turns to full dark, Tom remarked to me that Chester, our guide's dog, a big, beautiful German shepherd, was acting strange. I started to pay attention to him then, and it was true. Whereas before the presence of the bears had set him on edge, he'd maintained till now a very professional manner about the whole affair, almost seeming to take it in stride, motivation to double down on his diligence and the duties he'd assigned himself. He was born here, said the guide. This ain't his first rodeo. The dog I was looking at now was scared. 
He looped around the cabin like a skittish lapdog, ears pinned back, tail dragging. And as the night drew on, he only grew worse, leaping at shadows and barking at empty cots. Then, just after ten, as we were all getting ready to bed down for the night, someone opened the door to spit their toothpaste and he bolted. The fellow was gone before most of us even heard the door open, absorbed into the darkness. We heard his barking getting farther and farther by the minute, but it went on for a considerable time, and so we comforted our guide by saying that, whatever else might happen, he hadn't run directly into a bear's open mouth, and if he'd survived that long, maybe he'd be all right, might even come back. But he never did. Maybe he's still living off in those woods somewhere, enjoying his retirement from the world of humans. You really think that? asked Kurt. He was wearing a fleece with a silver star oil patch on the chest. Ah, uh, don't ask me that, said Teddy. Well, how's it end? Teddy lit a match and took a few puffs from his pipe. It's funny, he said, shaking out the match. I only ever want to smoke from a pipe when I'm at sea. He took his time savoring another puff. I believe my evening's coming to an end, gentlemen. Thank you for indulging me. You're just going to abandon the story? I'm afraid that is the story. I'm sorry it doesn't have a more gruesome and satisfying conclusion, but it's all pretty rote from there. I'm standing here now, aren't I? He paused in the doorway, his eyes like black beads fixed on the end of his pipe, as if they only needed some nearsighted place to rest while his mind traveled far and abroad. There is, uh, not much of an ending to that one, he said, examining a hangnail. But there is something of an epilogue. A few days before we were eventually rescued, I woke up in the middle of the night. To this day, I don't know why, since the bears weren't even making any noise at the time. But I sat up in bed to take a drink of water, and when I looked across the cabin, I noticed that Kevin had fallen asleep with his journal open on his chest. It looked like it might fall, so I went over and adjusted it. Now, of course, we all in these situations will swear up and down that we don't, would never take a peep at something like the inside of a private journal. And if you put me under oath, that's exactly how I'll testify. But in my heart, I really expected to see nothing more than some, some sort of production notes or maybe a horny love letter home. I knew he sometimes wrote little poems. But what I saw written there instead was a list of names. Our names. All of us in the cabin, except for his own. Mine was at the top of the list followed by a series of bullet points. They said things like, uh, cuts off any potential resistance at the knees, would 100% rally the rest to try and stop you if given chance, and uh, big, lots to go around, might have to only do one, would spare others, then a space, followed by a few more. Big, would put up a fight if you let him, and would be very unpopular. The next few names were PAs, all grouped together. Natural choice keeps morale highest. Then, after a space. All too skinny would possibly have to do all three to make them happy. Make them happy? asked Mr. Rodney, apparently having never been made privy to this section of the tale. Who, the rest of you? 
Not us, said Teddy. He took one last puff of his pipe and then dropped it into his jacket pocket. He looked at all of us for the first time since he'd stood up from the table. The bears, of course. With that, he gave the lot of us a curt smile and took his leave. The rest of us packed up our evenings and followed suit. A few hastily muttered excuse me's as we slid past and around each other to get to our cabins. Before sixty seconds had passed, the main part of the boat was empty. Teddy's story and the company of the other men, the dark veil which night had pulled across the windows, had transported me so thoroughly from the sea that my systems were shocked to find the silence of the open ocean waiting for me in the darkness of my bunk. The loneliness seeped into my muscles as cold adrenaline. Not another soul around, not a lantern light for a thousand miles. The sloshing of the water against the hull only deepened the silence. I could hear each time Teddy shifted a bit in his sheets above me. That was some storm. My own voice sounded strange and startling in the dark. You ever heard of the Edmund Fitzgerald? Came the voice from above. I told him I hadn't. Huge freighter up in the Great Lakes. Massive, solid steel. As big as they could make it, still floated through the locks. Down in the inch. A very famous ship. People loved her. She set hauling records again and again. 1975, she got caught out in a big November storm on Lake Superior. Big ship like this on a lake. 29 men aboard, and not a soul ever heard from again. You ever seen anything like that? It'll shake your soul to its core. Waves crashing over the deck, washing everything away that's not tied down. The bow of the thing rising skyward till you're damn near vertical. A structure so big, 500 men couldn't move it an inch if their lives depended on it. Snapped in half like a toothpick. That was only a lake. The frigid water just outside the window was listening in. A beast lying in wait. How did you do it? I was startled by the sound of my own voice. Do what? All of it. Get out of prison and become a TV star in like a year. Well, it was closer to a year and a half, really. I mean it, though. What are you implying? I'm not implying anything. Well, you talk as if it were easy, like it was handed to me. Well, it couldn't have been all that difficult, either. There were some breaks. I'm not too proud to admit that. The chances come along for everyone. It's recognizing and acting on them that makes all the difference. You really think that? For everyone, huh? I really do. A long silence ensued. Not so sure. He did not speak for so long that I began to think he'd fallen asleep. This magazine writer came to my apartment to interview me for a profile they were doing. We became friends. She manages to spin that piece into a book deal. I grab her coattails a little bit and she puts me in contact with this publisher who wants me to write my own book. I hadn't written anything since high school but they were paying up front. 
So I get an agent, and next thing you know, I'm at this party for the agency. It's not just their literary division, so there are people from TV and sports there, the whole nine. And this lady comes up to me a little drunk, and she and my agent are chatting, and she keeps telling me I have a face for TV. I'm too pretty to be a writer in all of this. She gives me her card. A week later, she calls me to tell me that her friend is starting a new nature TV channel. It's that simple. Huh. What? Just that easy. It really could happen to anyone. I don't know if you meant for that to sound as condescending as it did. I thought that was the moral of your story. The boat rocked easily in the midst of that endless night. Did you see Audrey before she died? No. Not for a long time. Me neither. She told me once, I remember, before everything went down, that she thought I was working with the FBI. Do you believe that? I laughed, and then she laughed. If you'd let me guess a thousand guesses what she was going to say before she said it, I wouldn't have even gotten close. It's one of the only times in my life I can remember truly having no idea what to say. Sometimes I think she was kidding, but other times... You don't say. Actually, there was one part of the story I left out back there. Mixed company, you know. It was one of our first days at the cabin before the weather turned and before the bears corralled us inside. We were shooting and having trouble finding any bears, so we split up to go search. I'd been hiking for maybe a half hour when all of a sudden I come across this chain link fence running straight through the forest as far as I can see in either direction. A small white sign with red lettering said, Posted, private property. I almost walked right into it. Maybe I would have if the sign hadn't been there. It looked so out of place. The island was wild. The whole thing and the surrounding land for hundreds of miles was protected as federal land. There were no people, no settlements, nothing so much as an access road for days in any direction. The place was untouched by just about any definition of the word. So what was this fence doing out here? I turned around and headed back, but from then on I kept seeing fences whenever I was out in the woods. But they were never real, not after that first one. Just that chain-link diamond pattern appearing and disappearing in the mists between the trees as if it were burned into my retinas. As far as I know, nobody else ever saw the fences. Or maybe they did. I never told anyone else. But someone knows I was there. How? I don't know. Trail cameras? Drones? I think that... I think that Silver Star is developing that land for drilling. Illegally? He chuckled. Why break the law when you can rewrite it? The black silhouette of Teddy's inverted head floated down over the side of the bunk to look at me. They've brought me here to kill me. I could not see his eyes. I did not know where exactly to look, but felt that whatever happened, I could not look away. Eventually, he returns to his own bunk. Good night. The silence was extraordinarily deep then. 
charged as if the world were not slumbering, but rather holding its breath and leaning forward on its toes in anticipation of some great upheaval which never materialized. Perhaps ten minutes had passed, perhaps more. My mind had decided many minutes before, since it could not actually know, that Teddy was now really and truly asleep. I was in that brief state of latent euphoria myself, sliding easily into the weightless twilight of half-consciousness, when I heard it, or thought I heard. He said no more than one word, whispered in the darkness, so I could never really be sure. Now or then, as I lay once again fully awake, ears probing the vibration of each molecule for further elucidation. But it sounded like he said, Croatoan. The next morning we spotted our first glacier. We all began to bundle up on deck throughout the day as temperatures started chilly and only grew colder with each passing hour. We drew near to land before sundown and spent the evening following the coastline towards the heart of the continent. The sight of that vast and barren country stopped my heart's beating, the cliffs towering above the water on a scale grander than anything I'd ever experienced, as if the whole of the continent were designed for habitation by some race of giants rather than men, swelled my chest so that I felt I could barely draw breath. Before I turned in for the night I could see at first on the horizon, and then, quickly drawing nearer, a field of ice flows, stretching across the whole of the sound. Captain Hayward patted me on the back. You fellas get your sleep. Gonna be a long night for us up here. Before heading below deck, I looked up at the stars, more than I'd ever seen, and guessed at the strange constellations. There's an almost pleasant sensation in the stinging cold on the rounds of your cheeks and nose when you know that you can be warm inside within a minute of deciding to be so. Hayward steered us into the ice floes, and I made for my bed. Sometime before dawn, we were lurched awake. The ship had stopped moving. Word went out that all was well. We were preparing to begin ice-breaking. We all appeared on deck to watch for a few minutes while we waited on coffee and breakfast. A few gulls flew across a band of purple horizon. There would be no going back to sleep again with the extra engines running. We emerged into open waters again just before lunch and were docked just after dark. We ate one last supper on the ship with the crew and Teddy toasted them and then Mr. Rodney led a prayer for our impending journey inland. In the morning we ate a quick silent breakfast and then began to disembark. I and a few of the other men helped the ship's crew unload all of the gear, ferrying it to shore over several trips in the dinghy. Teddy and Kurt stood on the rocky beach, smoking cigarettes. A colony of penguins were doddering about on a nearby cliff and swimming here and there in the small inlet below. Within the hour, we were saying our goodbyes to Hayward and his crew. There were two crawlers waiting for us, and so we split up three to each. Teddy and myself went with Lyle, a graduate student and our driver. He was there as a research assistant with Kurt. The other contained Kurt, Kurt's porter, Brett, and a tall, bald man who never spoke and whose name I cannot remember. In fact, I do not believe we were ever introduced, and Teddy only made time to say that he was another company man from Silver Star. They took the lead, and we slid into their tracks. The cab was little more than a glass box with a bench seat and the controls. I sat between Lyle and Teddy, and in our big bulging parkas, we looked like a trio of plumped-up seals, rose-tinted cheeks covered in a week's worth of whiskers, 
which was fine because the cold was of the sort that stiffened your bones and made it more comfortable not to move anyway. Hayward blew the ship's horn, a mournful blast that cut through the incessant rumbling of our engines. They were headed down the coast to refuel. Since only one of us could turn our head to look at any time, I let Teddy narrate for me. There they go, he said. Once he'd had his fill of the world we were leaving behind us, he turned forward. I turned, just in time to catch one last glimpse of orange. A moment later, we crested a rise in the landscape and began to descend, and they were gone. An alien landscape lay before us. We jostled along for several hours over barren tundra, rocky in some stretches, icy in others. When we stopped, Teddy cross-checked some paperwork with the GPS. This is the last known location for all five of the collared bears that are MIA, within a three-mile radius of this spot. How many of the bears were collared? I asked. Lyle and Teddy looked at each other. Lyle answered. Five. I haven't seen a single bear since we've been here. Is that... bad? Not necessarily, said Teddy. It's... unexpected, said Lyle. We didn't know what to expect. Nobody's ever done a thing like this before. You can make educated guesses, but at the end of the day, that's all you're doing. That's why we're here now. Lyle cut the engine and we all clambered out. The ground was made up entirely of rocks ranging in size from the size of my fist to the size of my head. They would make pebbles for giants. It felt like I was risking a sprained ankle with every step. Teddy drew a deep breath and blew a twisting cloud of steam which evaporated quickly in the sunlight. We humans have intruded in this fairy tale landscape to wrest its secrets from it, those secrets which have been hidden for millennia. He smiled at us. Amundsen, first man to reach the South Pole. He must have guessed by the look on my face that I was wondering who he was and what they'd done with the teddy I knew all those years ago. There's not a whole lot to do in prison except to read, and I had a whole lot of time for reading. His gloved hand clapped me on the back. The wind whipped down the tundra and across our faces in a wicked whistle, unbroken for miles and miles. Nothing so much as a cairn dared to stand against it and break with the utter flatness of the place. The wind had won a total victory here, everything in its path leveled. It seemed impossible in that moment to imagine anything but the rocky devastation existing from one end of the planet to the other, a picture of the ultimate apocalypse which waited at the end of all things, empty expanse of rock and sky. I understood on some level beneath knowing that the wind had carried its relentless assault across the waves and crashed ashore on the lands of man to pulverize every tree and every house, smooth over every mountain and grind every one of us to dust, or if it hadn't already been it would, tomorrow or a thousand years from now it mattered little. This was how it ended. I drew the hood of my parka a bit tighter. We joined with the men from the other crawler and surveyed the emptiness. Not one bear, said Kurt. We all fanned out and combed the ground for evidence. A few minutes later, Lyle called out. He'd found a frayed collar wedged between two rocks. The tracker was missing, and so we continued our search. As my eyes adjusted to the monotony, a terrible realization dawned on me. Mixed in with the rocks I was stepping on were bones, bleached by the sun and polished by the wind. And as my gaze widened, I saw that it was impossible to tell where the bones ended, or if they ever ended. It seemed like they might have been scattered as far as the rocks themselves. Nobody could identify with any accuracy what sort of animals the bones had belonged to. Some had clearly come from birds, but most were much larger. So Lyle and Kurt bagged up as many varieties as they could find for later testing. Seals, maybe? said Lyle. Kurt rubbed his chin and grimaced. Maybe, he said. But not our bears. What do you think? 
asked Teddy. Maybe they brought their dinner here, but I don't believe any of them stuck around. If they'd stayed along the coast and gone west, then surely they'd have spotted them at the research outpost. If they went east, they'd have hit the mountains. You think they left the coast? asked Teddy. I think we at least have to be sure they didn't, said Kurt. Teddy, his arms crossed, hung his head a moment and kicked at a rock. You heard the man. Let's make for the pole, shall we, gentlemen? We stopped to set up camp for the night in a rocky field which looked much like the one we'd stopped in earlier, though we'd managed to cover nearly 70 miles in the interim. Kurt unpacked and set up his telescope and then, after making a few adjustments, opened a sketchbook. See that? He pointed up at the sky. Southern Cross. You somehow get lost, can't find the rest of us? Let that point your way. Ten years ago, all this would have been frozen over, said Kurt, still bent over his telescope. It's really something. And we're finding now all the fossils that have been frozen in the ice for thousands or millions of years. And not always just the fossils either, but life. Microbiotic. Ancient bacteria and viruses, fungi and prions, time travelers from a much younger, more volatile Earth, thawed and belched back into the atmosphere. Things our immune system couldn't possibly hope to have an answer for. If the right thing came back, it could make the smallpox the Europeans brought to North America look like the sniffles. Ninety percent of the continent died then. I'd say 90 is an optimistic estimate if things pan out like a lot of people a lot smarter than me think they will. He took a sip of his tea. The campfire gleamed in his eye. Primitive life forms can be so endlessly fascinating, said Teddy. Not hard to imagine in a place like this. Feels like we might as well be on Mars. That word. Primitive. Are you so sure? asked the bald man. Unfamiliar to you does not mean unintelligent. We've not even been around for a blink in the grand scheme of the universe. We may not even have the first clue what real intelligence looks like. Kurt began again. It's like a built-in primordial kill switch for the whole planet. If the temperature gets too hot, he clicked his tongue, chopped the top of his thigh with the side of his hand. Fail-safe triggers wipes out the whole damn thing. Fresh canvas. He kicked at a rock, sent it clattering into the darkness outside of the firelight. Chuckled to himself. I'm sorry. I didn't set out meaning to spook y'all with my ghost stories. I never met a Texan who drank tea before, said Teddy. The wife insists. It's better for you than coffee, and I ain't had a drop of alcohol past my lips in five years. Oh, congratulations. Although, if we're telling ghost stories, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention something that my buddy told me about six months ago. He studies these things for a living, so when I see the kind of fear I saw in his eyes, he shook his head, tossed the dregs of his tea over his shoulder. You can imagine I haven't been sleeping very well as of late. He looked at each of us around the fire. We're amongst men of science here. Men of science adjacent. I assume some of y'all have heard of the jewel wasp. It's a parasite. You see, the mother wasp lays her eggs on the abdomen of a spider or a cockroach. Then, and here he jabbed his crooked index finger into the air. 
They run their stinger into the spider's brainstem, flood it with venom. And what do you know? Then the spider starts weaving a web for the larvae that are about to hatch. And when they do, well, by then the spider or the cockroach is paralyzed and easy pickings for their first meal. They eat their way right through. He looked up from the fire for only a moment and then continued. My friend tells me that the wasps inject the spider with a hormone to trick the brain, essentially hijacking the molting processes that are already programmed. <laughs> Hell, that's all we are up there at the end of the day after all. Just a bunch of chemicals mixing around and reacting, running programs, hooked up to a little motherboard of ones and zeros, yes or no, on or off. You can get those chemicals out of balance even a little bit, he sighed. Well, all that's to say, according to my friend, there's fungus in the ice. The permafrost, they think, operates about the same way, they theorize, on men's own brains. All just speculation, of course, and mere ghost stories. Be careful what you say, my friend. Stories are all we've got, said Teddy. They're as real as you or me. Without something to tell yourself, you're just a simpering ape with frozen ass cheeks huddled on some rocks 6,000 miles from anywhere. A grain of sand capable of feeling fear and loneliness and pain. We spent most of the next day chasing after a bear whose collar came back online sometime while we were sleeping. Out of the morning haze, a mountain ranger materialized to our right, so tall and so imposing that it made the rocks we were standing amongst appear like grains of sand. The rocky mountains of North America were foothills to foothills in comparison. Mount Terror, said Teddy. We kept them on our right shoulder all day and all the day after that, the blinking beacon on the GPS screen, always tantalizingly close though no bear ever appeared on the horizon. Now and then Lyle stopped and bent forward to collect samples which the beast had left behind. I woke early on the third morning of the chase, before any of the others. In my long underwear I slipped on some boots to watch the sunrise. From the moment I stepped out of the tent I felt, deep in my chest, that something was wrong. It took my brain a moment to catch up. For the first time since we'd landed on the continent, the wind was silent. The hairs on the back of my neck rose. The snow all around was a kind of shimmering, dreamy blue. Utterly, devastatingly silent. I saw something on the horizon, little more than a dark smudge in my vision. Too dark, too distant to make out any detail. A shadow. A watcher. But soon the rose rose sun and obliviated all nuance and shade. The tent flap fluttered behind me. I knew without turning that it was Teddy. Robert Falcon Scott called it the appalling silence. It burrows into you even deeper than the wind, doesn't it? Makes you feel all hollow and queasy. Others in the tents began to stir. Kurt appeared next, a plate of bacon in hand. He gestured clumsily in his parka at a wall of ice to the east. Just over that ice is the devil's ballroom. We'll be on foot if our misanthropic friends let us out there. We arrived at the ice about an hour later and then spent another hour packing up our sleds. With the crampons on our boots, we all managed to scramble over the jagged wall. 
Landing on the other side, we found ourselves on the edge of a vast plain of snow and ice, crisscrossed in the distance by cracks in the surface like the parched earth of the desert. Only when you examined one of these cracks up close would you find a yawning crevice, easily wide enough to swallow several men, and deeper than any alive could know. Careful, said Kurt. The snow blows around out here, covers up cracks and fissures in the ice, gaps in the ground. It can be difficult to gauge distance out here, so watch your steps. All of them. I adjusted the straps on my harness, which was attached to the sled carrying our party's personal gear and rations. The other porter pulled the necessary scientific gear. It was 20 degrees below zero Fahrenheit when we set out. Someone asked Teddy what the wind chill was, and he just said that he didn't want to know. I was still adjusting to the snowshoes and fell behind not long after we'd started. The rest of the party would walk out ahead, usually within sight, but sometimes beyond, and every few hours when they stopped to rest I would catch up, only to find them well rested and ready to keep moving. So I would say hello and ask how they were doing, and hand out any provisions they asked for, and then wave goodbye, and unstrap the sled for my waist. The conversations grew shorter with each meeting, and by the end of the day they'd only wait till they could see me coming up behind them, and make sure I was still alive before moving on. For several days, then, I only saw my comrades at breakfast and then at dinner, which they always ate before I arrived, so that I would find a pile of dirty dishes waiting for me, which I would always clean before sitting down to my own dinner, despite all of the men saying, No, you eat. Worry about those later, while they sipped on their tea and whiskey. Kurt's porter had a banjo, and he sat and played after dinner while we drank and talked. He was a big hit. I found myself always quite reserved at dinners, despite spending all of the day in want of some company, muttering half-forgotten song lyrics to myself through my ice-flecked beard over and over till I thought, am I going mad? I don't think I am, but maybe this is what it feels like. How could I really know? I spoke to myself in my head and I spoke to myself aloud. The sound of my voice outside of me was startling, and sometimes it seemed as if the sounds my throat made bore no relation to the voice that spoke to me on the inside, and I was struck by a deep, nameless fear in those moments. Was I speaking with myself in there, or was something else speaking to me? Certain thoughts and half-formed memories came to me which, despite my best efforts, I could never trace back to their source within the stream of my consciousness. No matter how hard I pushed, how close I came to collapsing, the party were never more than an aberration on the horizon, and behind me, step for step, was the black presence, the watcher which seemed a little larger now, a little closer each day, though it happened so gradually that I could never be sure. The detail of the thing eluded me. It was as if my eyes were incapable of bringing the spot into proper focus. But even when I wasn't looking back, I could feel it there, feel its gaze on me. Teddy woke me in the night. He placed his finger to my lips and whispered, Stay with us tomorrow. Give some excuse. Have Brad break down camp. I will try to slow our pace. He looked over his shoulder. Watch the crevices. The crevices frightened me to my core, more than the cold or the wind or the isolation. A gap in the earth, a forgotten place to rot, wedged so snug in the abyss as to never fill your lungs again, short, shallow breaths echoing endlessly back over your face while you wait, a few stray snowflakes tilt-whirling down from the vein of flat gray sky above. I finished my coffee at the same time as Brett Kurtz Porter and offered to take his mug. I've got to keep the sled next to Teddy this morning. Would you camp mine bringing down? He looked at me for a second. Would you bring mine down the camp? 
I put a momentary hold on a thousand other little things that the brain occupies itself with to focus on putting the words in the proper order the second time, and yet I could not. And the harder I pressed at it, the fainter the words grew like I was grasping at cloudlets of vapor. But he had understood my meaning. I tried to explain what had happened later on at lunch, by which time Brett had already caught the main group, partly because of his sure-footedness in the snowshoes and partly because of our own slow progress. Sounds like a migraine, maybe, he said. Happens to me sometimes, especially working in the cold. Do you get a migraine? No, not yet anyways. We trudged through the afternoon, leaning so far forward against the ferocity of the wind that any time it relented I fell forward on my face. I kept an eye on Kurt and whatever dark presence was stalking us, but it was all any of us could do to put one foot in front of the other. The wind howled, the cold gnawed away. At some point, I looked around and realized that I counted only four other men. I hurried to the front of the party to see if someone had pushed ahead. I looked back, waiting for any stragglers to materialize out of all that swirling white. None did. I recounted. Something was wrong. I called out for everyone to stop. We're missing someone. Everyone looked around them. Lyle, said Teddy. Shit. We began calling out. I was left with the gear, calling out periodically, partly to reach Lyle and partly to provide a beacon for the rest of the men to return to as they split up and wandered off in the four directions of the compass. At perhaps only 15 feet, they disappeared completely. I was left in a world devoid of horizon and devoid of anything else but my own thoughts. I've always found the Bashian depiction of hell fascinating, if completely foreign, because it depicts many people suffering together. I think if modern man had to go to hell, it might look very similar to this. I entertained myself imagining my feet glued to a globe while I hung upside down off of the bottom. Each of my companions was headed for an entirely different continent. It would be hard to hear my shouting at any distance over the screaming of the wind. I wandered out until the sleds were a little more than a smudge at my back and tried to project my voice, walking in a circle. I thought I saw someone approaching a block that seemed to form and unwind and then reform in the whirling churn. It seemed always to be approaching, and yet it never approached. I mentally mapped a direct line from my back, back to the sleds, and set out to try and rescue whoever was stranded in the torrent. I walked directly for them, but found only air and more snow receding before me. I turned around, searching, called out, and received no reply. In a split second of lapsed diligence, I lost my mental map almost completely. The sleds were out of my sight, and I had only a faint notion that they were somewhere more or less to my back. I strained to hear anything and thought that I might hear the sound of a man yelling, but the more I tried to focus on it, the more elusive it became, until it dissolved back into the wind, if it had ever been anything else to begin with. How long would I last if I simply sat down here and refused to take another step? What would end first, this storm or the beating of my heart? Would they wait for me, search for me, or leave me to follow the Southern Cross and pray? If I tried to retrace my steps and miscalculated by even ten degrees, I'd walk right past and never know it. Would the others leave me? Were we going to leave Lyle? I'd walked myself right out of the in-group, possibly. Figures. It would be something like this. No man can know the hour when his dumb luck is due to expire, but... And a part of me has always known it would eventually end this way. 
so many needless little risks and thoughtless little missteps taken over the years, more than I could possibly know, any one of which could have, had the dice rolled against me, quickly plunged me into a scrape of similar life-or-death type magnitude. I was always going to end this way, kicking myself for doing some stupid little thing that I didn't have to do. The cruelty was in having so much time for kicking. Maybe that is part of the appeal of a military death. The good death on the battlefield that they always talk about in the old stories. You don't have to get old, and you don't have to fall in an open manhole as your last act on this moral plane. Sometime before sunset, the wind calmed and the snow stopped and the temperature dropped noticeably. I saw the party about a half mile to the south. Their four little raisin forms shimmered and bent along the horizon. I learned that the bear's GPS signal had gone missing in the morning and never reappeared. We were only chasing his last known location. Nobody said anything about the research assistant. Kurt and Teddy ducked into Kurt's tent to discuss once camp had been set up and dinner started, and when they emerged, they announced that we would continue our pursuit for one more day, and if the signal didn't reappear, we would turn around and make for the coast. At dinner, Teddy stared into his stew, not saying much of anything, and when he thought nobody was looking, tossed it over his shoulder without taking a bite. He and I were the last remaining around the fire after the others retired to their tents. Why am I here? I asked. He drew a sip of bourbon from the bottle and smiled at the fire. One thing I can't stand is when people ask questions they already know the answer to. I said nothing. Fifty thousand dollars doesn't just disappear, he said, and it sure doesn't pay itself back. He finished the bourbon, stood up, patted me on the shoulder, and then disappeared into his tent. I awoke sometime in the middle of the night. Something was wrong. I listened and heard nothing, but I could feel something out there in all that darkness. We weren't alone. Something pressed against the wall of my tent and I screamed. Loud snuffling, and then the front half of the tent collapsed as a polar bear sat on my leg. I cried out again and tried unsuccessfully to pull my leg free, but the movement startled the bear and he stood up with a throaty grumble. I heard a roar from the other side of the camp, and then someone screaming, Oh God! Oh God, help me! I unzipped my tent door in time to see the bear, a flash of white fur, so big that my brain could not, at first, comprehend it, dragging Brett's tent away, and he inside, thrashing around, leaving a warped trail in the snow a few feet across. Kurt appeared from his tent a moment later, rifle shouldered. Teddy shouted, lunged, a shot rang out, the snow exploded near Kurt's feet, a powdery geyser. With one hand on the back of Teddy's coat, the tall, bald man ripped him off of Kurt and flung him halfway across the camp. Already Brett's screams, no less terrified, were beginning to fade. The bald man drew a hunting knife from its sheath as he bore down on Teddy. I grabbed at his arm and he shrugged me off, slashing me across the face. But I'd given Teddy time to scramble to his feet and arm himself, halting the man's advance. Kurt ran a few awkward steps beyond the firelight without his snowshoes, his feet swinging wildly through and over the snow, arcs of powder winging through the air. Soon he stopped. Brett's screams echoed across the night, but he and the bear were nowhere to be seen. Everyone was breathing heavy, chests rising and falling in long underwear. Staccato bursts of condensation quickly swept away on the wind and dissolved in the darkness. We came here to check on the bears, not kill them. I'd come here to kill him, and I'd just saved his life. He was a good man, 
who knew what he signed up for. The bears are endangered. We are not. Kirk glared at him. Then he turned and fired a couple of shots into the night in the direction of bear that had gone. He shouldered his way past Teddy on the way back to his tent, and not another word was spoken till morning. At dawn, we packed in silence and set off following the trail Brett's tent had left in the snow, the bald man, who Kirk called Myron, now pulling the second sled. We eventually came to the tent, shredded and blood-smeared, a couple of miles from camp. No sign of Brett. Not long after, the black presence appeared on the horizon to our rear, larger than it had ever been. My ears were so cold that I felt it would be a mercy to simply carve them off with my knife. My fingers throbbed constantly. Even when I couldn't feel them, I could feel them throbbing, and I could barely bend them enough to grip the handles of the sled. Each time we walked, I would sweat, and each time we rested, the sweat would freeze. And we were only moving further inland with every step. Every step would have to be repaid on the return trip. When and if we ever began our return trip. The sky was endless. The land offered no salvation. Before midday, the wind had covered all trace of the bear's tracks. Later on, a tall wall of rocks and ice appeared on the horizon. About an hour after that, we were scrambling over top of it. A familiar landscape of rocks and desolation spread out before us, impossible to tell whether we had ventured upon some new country or simply gotten turned around out on the ice and ended up back where we'd begun. It was beginning to grow dark when Myron cried out and collapsed. He writhed around on the ground, struggling to grab at his leg, though he could barely bend at the waist through all the layers of clothing. Kurt kneeled beside him, but Myron did not want to let him take off his boot. The ankle bone was poking up under the skin, the foot bent at a grotesque angle. Kurt looked at Teddy, his face grim. We loaded Myron onto the top of my sled, and Teddy took over the other sled. We failed to make much progress after that. Every foot I was able to move felt like a small, unrepeatable miracle. We camped not far from where he'd collapsed and ate in silence. Moving had been difficult, but in the cold, not moving was even worse, and Myron's skin had begun to turn a pale shade of blue. I watched him while I ate, and several times thought that I might have been looking at a corpse until he blinked. He was only breathing a few times each minute, and every so often he would shiver violently for about thirty seconds before his neck muscles tightened and his body went rigid. After dinner, Kurt took some stew and tried to feed him, but it all just ended up running in streamlets through his beard and freezing in discolored little icicles. He felt the man's forehead and opened each of his eyes wide, briefly examined them with his flashlight before lifting his pant leg to look at the ankle. He could only purse his lips and shake his head. My attention drifted elsewhere till I saw the look of horror spreading across Teddy's face. When I followed his gaze and turned to look at Myron, Kurt was standing behind him, loading the rifle. In one fluid motion, grimacing, he raised the rifle and fired. The rear of Myron's hairless head exploded in a red spew. Little pebbles and shards of skull spattered my parka, tufts of beard hair blowing like dune grass planted in the snow around my boots. Kurt wiped some of the blood from his brow and approached Teddy. Do not confuse cowardice for mercy. I awoke sometime in the night to a rustling outside of my tent. My stomach sank, thinking the bear had returned, but I remembered that Kurt was on watch. Silently, I opened the tent on the door several notches, just enough to peer out with one eye. 
By firelight I saw Kirk bent over Myron's body, shoveling by the palmful a green pebbly substance, crystals the size of road salt, from a paper sack into his former comrade's mouth. He poured it in until Myron's mouth overflowed, every pocket and nook crammed with the stuff, little stones cascading down his cheek and catching the fire like crystalline tears. That done, Kurt tossed a makeshift cross on top of the corpse and began dragging the sled back the way we'd come. I stayed up listening to the distant clacking of rocks, and before long, Kurt returns to camp towing an empty sled. He checked his watch. It was time for Teddy's shift, but Kurt did not wake him. He sat by the fire with his binoculars and watched the spot where he'd taken the body. I was about to let myself fall back asleep when he perked up in his seat. Straining, I thought I could hear on the wind rocks being moved, even a soft grumbling, a clipped and muted roar. I lay in my sleeping bag, staring at the ceiling of the tent and groping through my memory. I had seen those pellets before. There was a pale light in the sky when I awoke. Nobody was sitting watch. I bundled myself against the chill, blood still slow with sleep, and headed in the direction of Myron's grave. His corpse was visible as I neared the rock pile. Kurt had buried him poorly if he'd buried him at all. My mind, swept clean of the previous day's buildup of background radiation, was quick to make the connection. Rat poison. From the ship. A small mound of the stuff poking out from between his blue lips. Eyes glossy, filled with the ever-brightening sky, the breathy whisper of passing clouds reflected in the gauzy memory of his irises. His eyebrows white and bushy with snow, a mockery of the old age he'd never see. A larger deposit of the poison was visible, and a long slit in his belly, for his clothes had been shredded and scattered about the scene, and indeed a nearby patch of snow showed the coming and going of a polar bear, but Myron's flesh remained, untouched, aside from Kurt's own gruesome modifications. The others were still asleep when I returned. I watched the sunrise, half daydreaming, and when it was up and I freed of my stupor, I turned around and saw the black presence. It had circled around and ended up on our other flank, directly in the coming day's path. Surely others of the one would say would something. Not long after lunch, we came to something. The first feature to rise from the landscape and meet our gaze in days. It seemed, then, almost to shimmer in the near distance with holy relevance, this squat little outpost covered in rocks, so that only the regularity and severity of its angles distinguished it from the rest of the picture. And as we drew nearer, we saw behind it a cluster of dwarfish radio towers and a small oil derrick. I heard, over my shoulder, Teddy muttering under his breath, What the hell is that? We all slowed our approach, as if in awe. But our noise must have startled a nearby bear, because it emerged from behind the derrick, stomping and huffing. Without hesitation, Kurt raised the rifle and spotted around right in the bear's shoulder, little red dot immediately visible in all of the whiteness, one moment to the next. Before Teddy could even react, he landed another, this one in the bear's chest, and the beast went down. As soon as Teddy did react, Kurt was ready, and wheeled around, rifle at the ready to stop him where he stood. You are now on Silver Star property, and I have the legal authority to prevent you from meddling in company business. He stared back and forth at each of us for a long second, and then, with a formal smile, resumed the trek to the compound. The door was wide open. Snow had drifted into the shadowy corners inside. 
Teddy yanked a generator near the entrance, coughing to life, and inside, several banks of fluorescent bulbs lit meekly. Kurt was the first to enter. A pair of legs stuck out of a snowbank to the left, a frozen head and torso from a similar pile near the rear of the room. A wall-length shelf of provisions had been toppled and ransacked. Broken jars, empty wrappers, dented and punctured cans littered the floor. The lights flickered and buzzed only a few inches from the top of my head. How much gas was in that generator? asked Kurt. Not much. The torso was wearing a silver star parka. Each of his whiskers was capped in a globular crystal of ice, glistening in the dim light. His eyes were clenched tight, burnt hole in his cap near the temple, where black blood had gurgled up to fill the space and solidified like caulk. I could see my own face distorted in either eye of the mirrored ski goggles he wore around his neck. Kerr brushed off the legs. The man's body had lain untouched where it last fell, or at the very least undigested and in one piece. Kurt next grabbed the ankles of the other fellow's legs and pulled out an entire corpse, stiffer than a piece of lumber. A loud cracking noise in the ice. The second man's eyes were open, downcast, and eternal woe. He matched his comrade with a scorched entry wound on the side of his head and ski goggles slung around his neck. There was something in his eyes. I stepped closer while Kurt began pulling leather logbooks down from the bookshelf. There was a black dot clouding the man's left eye, distinct but sort of dissolving away at the edges. Something about it fascinated me. I couldn't stop staring at it, and the closer I looked, the less defined it seemed to become. Teddy spoke and broke the spell, but before I turned my attention, I could have sworn that I saw... that I saw it move. Though from the corner of my eye, I could never be certain. What is this? Kurt gestured at the room around us as if it were self-explanatory, and then returned his attention to the logbook. That bear wasn't even coming for us. Sure it was, said Kurt, never lifting his head, his index finger still tracing the columns over the page. These two gentlemen were down here looking for oil. He snapped the book shut and tucked it under his arm. And by the looks of it, they found some. He began collecting the rest of the logbooks. We were worried for a while there. Our surveys showed pockets of the stuff, but for the first two weeks they were here, they couldn't find a drop. Then one day out of the blue, their mood changed entirely. Get down here right now. Move heaven and earth to set up drilling operations as soon as possible. And then radio silence. We just never heard from them again after that. He looked at one corpse and then the other. Shame. But great news! He patted the bag, carrying all of the logbooks, and stepped outside to smoke a cigarette. The sad-eyed man was clutching a notebook to his chest. I pried it loose and found that most of its pages were missing, evidently torn out. The few that remained grew increasingly covered in wild scribbles and scratches, and the last few were completely black, the paper soft and soaked through with ink, ripped in spots beneath the frustrated pen tip. I noticed, on the relatively clean first page, the imprinted ghosts of words which had been written on the final missing page in frantic jumbled handwriting barely more legible than the scribbles. God, oh, 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 God, can't, the from ice, can't, brain, can't, not me, not me, inside, head side in. Where, where, 
God, oh, dog, morph, necked, m, m, ton, m, sidon, ho, dog. My head spun, trying to read the words, feeling dangerously unmoored from the rest of my body. Kurt stepped into the back room. I want my name taken off the project, said Teddy. Kurt just laughed. People trust me. I'm not going to be a part of some bullshit cover operation. Kurt smiled to himself. No, you're not. And then he shot him. The percussion in such a small space sent me crumpling to my knees. Teddy staggered back, angling his chin down to gaze in wonder at the still smoking hole in his chest. A few feathers floated down the to floor. Then he collapsed, limp before he hit the floor. Kurt's boots clunked across the floor until they were standing only a foot or so in front of me. I felt the icy barrel of the gun under my chin. He tilted my face up to examine me. Then gun he cocked the gun. Cross-eyed looking down the back hole of hovering the barrel inch from the nose of the tip of my nose. But he hesitated. Squinted into my looking eyes. A smile creased the corners of his mouth. Lower gun. And he... I think I'd like to ride one of our sleds for the return trip, if that's all right with you. He was already headed for the door when I opened my eyes. My head was still ringing. His voice sounded distant, lost at sea. The room began to tilt. I crawled over to where Teddy lay, little rasping irregular breaths. I tore open his jacket and the shirt beneath it. His chest was barely moving, the wound sucking and oozing blood. His skin was tattooed above his heart in plain black font and black ink. Croatoan. From outside came a shrill whistle. We're losing daylight. I upright struggled upright to stay. I'm struggling, I as. Hard to write. Think to hard. Sound of something chittering, grinding away at the stem of my brain. I have heard of people driven insane by sensory deprivation. Places so quiet that you can hear the insides of your body at work creaking, pumping away. What was it that old sea captain called it? The appalling silence. Trying I'm to write every down thing. Might spot eyes and when moving black? It was sometimes looked I think eyes and Kurt saw something moving. Kurt sometimes looked eyes black spot. Arflagen, Daster, Omplane, Impling. Heron Durfersher, Mintlock, in Staff and Ankblappen, in Martinborn, Afton Sagman, Toff, Irif, Ruff, Inster, Aster, Fermel, Kagan, Inker, Dern, Dern. Oh, I. The Appalling Silence, or In the Shadow of Mount Terror. <laughs>